Bibles on page 923. Acts 14. Uh, this morning we'll be looking at verses 19 through 23. About a month ago, Ellie managed to score a huge fine for our family. I was very excited when she brought it home. She got a two-volume set of an adapted copy of John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, illustrated and updated for kids. Now, if you're not familiar with The Pilgrim's Progress, you are missing out. It's an allegorical tale, so it's a, it's a story with very, very thin allusions um, to reality. Uh, it's meant to represent that. Um, it, 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 it's a story about the Christian life, and it takes us, it follows the story of a man named Christian, who is fleeing the city of destruction to the celestial, or the, the celestial city, or the city of Zion, which is the city of the king. So it's very, very thinly veiled, as you can tell. Uh, it is quite the adventure, and Titus has been absolutely enraptured with this book, and I'm glad to have it because it's allowed us to have all sorts of really good conversations about God, about grace, about what it means to trust Christ, what it means to follow Christ, and what it means to be courageous in, in this life, living for him. There's just so, so many helpful moments in that book. It's been around for a long time. If you get a chance, if you haven't read it, then I encourage you to pick up a copy. Uh, if you don't like reading the old King James language in which it was first written, they do have updated versions. So pick you up one of those, read it. You're going to enjoy it. It's going to encourage you. Uh, if I were to pick one of those helpful moments uh, to be my favorite, it'd be quite hard, but one of them, and one we just, I just read with Titus uh, last night, happens uh, when Christian has made his way up a very difficult hill. It is called the Hill of Difficulty. Uh, he starts out at the bottom, and it's really not too bad, but eventually it gets steeper and steeper and steeper until finally he is on his hands and knees just crawling to the top. And just as he's come to the top of this hill, he is met by two other travelers who are just running for their lives away from the celestial city towards him down the path. Uh, the, these, these two men named Timorous and Mistrust are terrified. And when they come to Christian, they tell him that there are two huge lions up ahead on the path, and they urge him to turn around and to go home or he will most certainly meet his death. Well, Christian doesn't know what to do. Uh, he knows if he returns to the city of destruction, he will perish. But he's also concerned about these lions on the path. He decides it's better to risk potentially dying than it is to go back and certainly die. And he trusts the king, pressing on, hoping that maybe those lions won't be there when he gets there. But unfortunately, he finds what timorous and mistrust told him to be true. As he comes to a narrow pass leading to a beautiful palace, Christian sees two terrible lions standing there waiting on him. And as he sees them, fear grips his heart. He, he stops and he hesitates. He thinks about running away, but he is so afraid he can't even move his feet. And then he hears a voice coming from the palace itself that says, is your strength so small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained and are placed there for the trial of faith where it is and for the discovery of those that have none. Keep in the midst of the path and no hurt shall come upon you. Now from where he's standing, Christian can't see the change that this man speaks of, but he listens 
and with trembling feet he walks between these two beasts which roar and snap at him but he finds that they are actually unable to touch him because of the chains on their feet not only that they're unable to harm him or even frighten him so in joy he rushes forward into the palace I've always loved that part of Bunyan's story because I think it is such an excellent illustration of the way that God calls his people to live by faith in times of trouble, times of danger, times of testing, so that he may perfect us and grow us in our faith. As we sang earlier in our first song, the flame shall not hurt us. Its only design is our dross or impurities to consume and our gold to refine. Satan is like one of those great chained lions that Pilgrim met, that Christian met on the, on the path. He is a dangerous enemy, but just like Bunyan's illustration, we're reminded in Scripture that he cannot overcome the sovereign purpose and plan of our loving Heavenly Father. He can rage all he wants, but he cannot ultimately harm us because we are held fast in the loving hands of our God. Now we, for our own part, must learn to live by faith, not by fear. And while the path of obedience will take us through many dangers and trials and tribulations, our King calls us to be of good courage, assuring us that we are held safe in his loving hands. That, this, is the great lesson of our passage this morning. And it's an important message for us to receive. This, this, this sermon has felt very personal because as I was writing it, I got the news my grandmother had passed. So there may be some things that have invaded that. But I hope that as we study this passage together, that God will encourage you to live with bold courage, knowing that these promises are true. In the midst of feeling the comfort that the gospel brings in the midst of death right now. I'm thankful for that, and I want you to have that too. So let's look at our passage together. Please stand. I'm not going to make it through this term without crying. So please stand as we read God's holy word. This is the word of the Lord. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. This is a surprising passage of Scripture. Really, which really rounds out the puzzling time that Paul and Barnabas had in the city of Lystra. But it's a rich text, and it aims to teach and encourage believers to walk on the path of faith. 
The lesson for us is the same lesson that these events conveyed to those who lived through them. What Paul and Barnabas taught, which is this, that the path to the kingdom of God will take us through many dangers. But we must not fear. Christ will see us through. The sovereignty of God is meant to be a great comfort to his people. There are no accidents. There are no times when events get out of God's hand. He has a purpose in all of them. And as we see, as as we make our way through this passage, I want to show you three things that King Jesus has given his people to help see us through those dangers that we will face as his disciples. So first, I want to show you that he has given us a firm foundation of faith. He has given us a firm foundation. Second, we see that he gives us a promise of life and a view of his power. And third, we see that he gives us a place in his flock. Let's begin with this firm foundation that we have in faith. Of all the details of Paul and Barnabas' time in Lystra that puzzle me the most, it's how we get from verse 18 to verse 19. Okay, if you, if you were here last week, if you remember... Uh, Last week, Paul and Barnabas were scarcely stopping people from worshiping them as gods. And now, in verse 19, they're being stoned. So, very different circumstances going on here. And we have to ask ourselves, what on earth happened to bring us from one place to another? One moment, the people are trying to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods, and the next sentence, they're stoning them. Literally, they're stoning Paul. So how do we go from oxen and laurels to jagged stones? Well, Luke tells us in verse 19 that Jews from Antioch, now that is Pisidia, Antioch, that's not Syria, where they started from. This is Antioch, which is to the west, where they had first made into the mainland of Galatia. So Jews from Antioch and Iconium came to Lystra. Presumably, they had heard about what was happening there, that Paul and Barnabas were preaching and sharing the gospel, and, and so they come there to put a stop to it. And having persuaded the crowds, Luke tells us, they stoned Paul. Now, if we think back to the beginning of chapter 14, you'll remember that the whole reason Paul and Barnabas had ended up in Lystra in the first place is because they were kind of on the run from these other two cities. In Antioch, they had been driven out of the district by the leading men and women of the city. In Iconium, the Jews and Gentiles who were against Paul and Barnabas, despite the clear demonstration of Jesus' power, had tried to organize a plot to stone them there. So now the forces have come together and they've tried travel to Lystra to put an end to this once and for all. Now, we don't know how much time passed between verses 18 and verse 19. It seems to be that there was a significant amount of time because uh, these cities are not exactly next door to each other. Antioch is several days' journey from Lystra, and though Iconium is closer, it's not like it was a stone's throw away. So there would have had to be time for news to get back to these people and for them to come together, and then for them to travel there. So some time has passed. We don't know how long, but a little bit of time. As we read this, it's a little shocking to us, because we go from verse 18 to verse 19, and it looks like it was in the same day. But I think we're meant to understand there's a little bit of space of time for people to have thought and heard about the gospel, for the disciples to have grown, and for this 
plot to be organized. Uh, even so, we, I think we can all agree, this is a massive twist in the story. It says something to me about how persuasive these Jews from Antioch and Iconium were. And it says something about how faithless hearts can be easily swayed by Satan's lies. When the, when the Jews from these other cities arrived in Lystra, they didn't come to debate theology. They weren't coming to try and convince anyone to stop worshiping false gods. They were only interested in putting a stop to Paul and Barnabas and the message they were preaching. Now, we could read this. Uh, so what we see here is that they organized the crowds against Paul and Barnabas, and they persuade them to basically become a murder mob. A murder mob. Um, now, as I, I've, I've never really... As I was studying this, the thought occurred to me, so who's actually doing the stoning? And Luke doesn't actually tell us. Uh, it could, we could very easily read this that they had turned the crowds against Paul and stoned him, or we could also understand that, this is the, that the people stoning Paul are specifically the Jews from these other cities. Or it could be a mixture of them all. One way or another, they had said something that made the crowd okay with putting Paul to death. In fact, riling them up enough to just go after them, go after him, and carry out their plan that they were trying to do in Iconium. And I don't know how Barnabas managed to not have any rocks thrown at him, uh, but they target Paul in particular, probably because he was the main preacher. Now, the scene here as we read this is not unlike what we saw with Stephen back in Jerusalem, which is something to consider considering that Paul was involved in that stoning, and now he himself is being stoned for the same message. The only difference between Stephen and Paul and their experience in this, besides Paul not ultimately dying, is that he's stoned in the city itself and then drug outside after they presume he's dead, whereas Stephen was taken outside and then stoned there. Now, they thought they did a good job. Uh, they presumed that he was dead. Uh, they had sent a message to everyone. They, they killed him in the city, effectively, and they drug his body through the streets and left him outside to be eaten by dogs and wild animals. This is a, this is a warning to anyone who would profess faith in Christ, that this is what happens to those who believe the gospel. And as we look at this, we have to think that this would be an absolute pitiful scene. If you put yourself, put yourself for a moment in Barnabas' shoes or in the shoes of one of the believers in Lystra who, who saw this. They, as they walk, they're, they're standing here, they're watching their friend be pelted with jagged stones by their neighbors. Uh, think about the horror they wa- as they watched his lifeless body being drugged through the streets with streaks of blood tracing the way out of the city gates. This is a brutal scene. How would would you feel as these enemies of the truth, who aren't even from your city, have come in and and killed, effectively, one of your closest friends and then cast his body out like trash? You would be horrified. Likely, you would be feeling a bit of fear here. You'd be wondering, well, who's next? Are they going to do this to me? Are they going to do this to my family? Paul and Barnabas had come preaching a message of salvation. The evidence of the truth of their message was undeniable. They would be asking yourself how on earth people could treat them this way. How could a crowd that was so eager 
to regard them as gods, turn so quickly and then seek to murder them after all the good they had done. This, this scene in Lystra says something to us about the blindness of men's hearts apart from saving faith. The Jews who came into the city and turned the crowds against Paul probably would have told you they were doing the right thing. We know they hated Paul and they hated Barnabas, ultimately because they were jealous of them and because they had not believed the good news they had come to share. But from their perspective, they probably would have told you they were being zealous for the glory of God. Luke doesn't tell us how these men managed to persuade the crowd, but it obviously worked. That initial fascination that people had with the gospel and with the power of Christ didn't ultimately last. They heard the word, but they didn't build their lives on it. They didn't build their houses on the rock of Christ. And so when these enemies of the gospel came in, in a moment the crowds were swept away in the chaos, even going so far as to murder a godly man. And we're, all, we're already well aware of the hatred that these Jews had for Paul and had for the gospel he preached. The big detail that I want to zero in on, though, is, is specifically what I want you to notice is the way that the crowd's opinion of Paul and his message turned on a dime. It, it's bewildering. The crowds were so quickly and effectively influenced. And when we ask why, we have to understand that because although the truth of the gospel and the power of Jesus' lordship was set so plainly before them, they didn't ultimately believe. And so like a toy boat on a stormy sea, they were tossed about in the waves of false opinions to do reprehensible things. They were still living subject to their own fleshly desires under the influence of Satan, as we read in Ephesians 2 as Ephesians 2 explains, that we all did before God's redemptive grace worked on us. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about the transformation that happens when we are joined to Christ. Calling us to maturity, he tells us how the grace of God works in us as believers so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by the wind of doctrine or by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. As we look at this crowd, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing people being tossed about, carried on by men's opinions and by the craftiness of deceit. So we have to understand that the reason the crowds were so easily swayed is because they had no firm foundation. They were just like the foolish man in Jesus' parable who built his house on the sand, not the rock of Jesus and his teaching. When the storm comes in that parable, we see that the house falls because it lacks that firm foundation. In James chapter 1, we're told that the person who lives in doubt is like the wave of the sea, which is driven and tossed by the wind. It goes wherever the wind blows it, and it never has rest. And then we read in Isaiah, as he describes, The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. That is what we're seeing here in Lystra. 
So although it's confounding, though it defies reason, that people would go from a point of venerating two, two guys as having the power of God, venerating them as gods, to all of a sudden flipping to want to kill them, well, we have an explanation now. They have no firm foundation. There was no peace for the crowds in Lystra because there was no belief, no faith, no Christ in them. So in rage, they took up arms against the gospel of Christ and against the servant of Christ. And they acted out of the wickedness of their own hearts, showing just how out of step they really were with the truth. As surprising as it is to hear about this massive flip-flop in Lystra, it's not as if we can't understand why the Jews who came there were able to have this effect on the crowd. Jesus warns his disciples to expect such treatment from the world. In his gospel, John tells us that Jesus knew what was in the heart of man, and therefore he did not entrust himself to people. He did not say the things he said or do the things he did because he was seeking the glory that comes from man. But rather, we're told that he did them because above all, he treasured the glory and the deep pleasure of his heavenly Father. It was that relationship with the Father that grounded Jesus in all of the works he did here on earth. Why? When the crowds abandoned him and he looked at his disciples and said to them, well, are you going to leave as well? He was willing to continue going on because he was that committed to the glory and the will of his Father. In calling us to be his disciples, Jesus has given us that same sure foundation. Paul calls Jesus the chief cornerstone of the household of God, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows in a holy, as, as a holy temple unto the Lord. Now, you know that, that's Ephesians 2, verses 20 and 21. Peter likewise says in his first letter, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, while the world is driven here and there by various passions and changing opinions, we who are in Christ have a sure foundation of faith and hope in the unchanging person of Christ. We have a gospel that doesn't change on the whims and fancies of the opinions of people, but on the bedrock truth of who God is. So in an ever-changing world, the Christian has this sure, steady anchor to hold us fast through the storms of life. Christ, Christ is like a mountain. No matter how the wind of opinions howl and blow, whichever direction it comes from, for all its rage, it can never make the mountain bow down to it. He is our victorious king who has given himself to us to be that firm foundation that holds us fast in the chaos around us. Jesus warns us that in this world we will have trouble. Paul certainly found that to be true, didn't he? But he also calls us to take heart, to be of good courage, because he tells us, I have overcome the world. That led Paul 
to write to Timothy, who actually is from Lystra. I can't help but wonder if maybe Timothy watched Paul take those rocks to his head. And then he hears Paul say to him, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. Be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul founded his life on that truth. And that same truth which grounded him, even in the face of death, is the same truth which is meant to ground you and me in that. It is a firm foundation. When others look to their saviors and find them lacking, we look to Christ and find him all the more sufficient, more sufficient than we had thought. We have a firm foundation in the faith. King Jesus has not let us wander around in this world. He has given us a straight and narrow path and a firm rock on which to to anchor our hope and our soul. What Paul said to Timothy, he says by extension to us. And that applies to the way that we think about our own faith and about the way we think about what we practice as a church. Understand, the opinions of the world are easily swayed. We can see that right here in Lystra. Easily swayed. But we have this firm foundation of faith and hope in Christ which will hold us fast and which will not disappoint What that means is that we must always strive to remain steadfast and true to Jesus. Trying to win the favor of the world is like trying to catch a wave in your hand. No sooner will you lay hold of it than it will disappear and change direction. Christ has called us as his disciples and as Grace Baptist Church to reach the world, but he hasn't called us to be worldly. In fact, he's called us to flee worldliness. So if we want to reach the world, and I hope you do, we pray for that every single Sunday. If we want to reach the world, the first thing we must do is take our stand on this foundation, on the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ, clinging to him even as we call others to cling to him as well. So that is the first way Jesus equips his people. Second, we see in this passage that Jesus equips his people to endure by giving us a promise of life and a view to his power. The Jews who came to Lystra came on a murder mission. They they were on a mission to silence the gospel, and their plan to do that was to silence Paul. So the scene in Lystra is, is pretty complete. They have stoned him, they have drugged him out of the city, and they are utterly convinced he's dead. They wouldn't have stopped throwing stones if they didn't think he was dead. Thorough as they were, though, Paul's hour had not yet come. In verse 20, Luke tells us that when the disciples gathered about him, Paul rose up and entered the city. So Luke says some things here that make me think that Paul didn't actually die, but everyone thought he was dead. 
But as we look at this, this is no less miraculous. Okay, notice two things here. First, the text doesn't say that they carried Paul back into the city. He gets up on his own power. That is amazing. I mean, the crowds aren't throwing pebbles at Paul. They're throwing the biggest stones they can throw effectively. They are trying to kill him. They thought they had. But apparently they had failed at this or God had restored his life. Luke doesn't really say. One way or another, Luke tells us that Paul, they think he's dead, and then all of a sudden he's popped right back up like a daisy and he's headed right back in. That's the second thing you've got to notice here. Paul goes back in the city. This is the last place I would ever want to be. Imagine you're driving. I know Sheboygan has like no violence, okay? And if you tell me it's a violent place, you're ridiculous because I know what it's like to live in a violent city. We timed our watches in Louisville by gunshots, okay? Not that bad. Okay, sorry. Um, anyway, if you had just been shot at, let's say you're driving your car in a, in a part of town, and someone just unloads into your car, and somehow you manage to turn it back on, are you going to drive back there? No, you're not going to go back there. But here's Paul walking right back through the very city gates where they've just been drugged. Probably he's following his own blood trail back home. Now granted, he and Barnabas head out the next day to this neighboring city called Derby. but it is just utterly striking to me that Paul goes right back to the very place that just made this attempt on his life. Why, why would he do that? Why didn't he just go shake the dust from his sandals like he did in Antioch and then head on to Derby? Did he want to die? Think he was loopy from the stones that hit his head? Well, no. No, Paul didn't have a death wish, and he wasn't out of his mind to go back in the city. The reason I think Paul went back was ultimately to encourage the saints who were there, to present himself, and to show the surpassing power of Christ and how he had preserved Paul's life. The believers in Lystra had so much to fear as they saw Paul being effectively murdered before their eyes. And yet Paul didn't lose his life. He should have been dead, but he wasn't. And Luke means for us to understand, to to see something of the power of the sovereign hand of God in this. By the grace of God, Paul was spared. And as a spared man, he took up strength to walk in faith, not in fear. The other believers saw this happen. Their neighbors saw this. And the lesson we're meant to take from this is that for all the efforts of Satan and his minions, King Jesus is the one on the throne. Jesus' purpose cannot be undone. Our lives are in his hand. And just as Jesus spoke in his own ministry, saying, my hour has not come, and then saying, my hour is here, So we are to understand that the hours and the moments and the days of our lives are held in the hand of our sovereign, loving Heavenly Father. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, and nothing can undo the purpose or the plan that he has for us. As we look at Paul's suffering, we have to wonder to ourselves how he could endure that. But I think as we do, we see that there's a point to Paul's suffering. In Paul's weakness, we see the power of God perfected. 
God enabled Paul to get up and to walk. He protected him as he went back in the city, and then he paved a way for Paul to go the next day with Barnabas to Derbe, where he and Barnabas saw great fruit. What we see here outside those dusty gates in Lystra is the fact of Christ's power and his supreme authority. Paul's faith was tested. It was shown. He walked between the lions, so to speak. The believers who rushed to his side learned that day that for all the efforts of men, for all the snarls of our enemy, Satan, they are no match for the victory of our king who has conquered through his cross. As I look at Paul and as I see him make his way back to the city, I just I cannot help but think about the first question that is asked by the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid fully for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is what it means to have a right view of God's power and to live accordingly. That's why Paul walked back into that city. He was able to do so because apart from the say-so of his Father in heaven, not a hair could fall from, from what tradition holds to be his really bald head, apart from what God had purposed. God had a business for him yet. And he went because he was not his own, but having been bought by Christ and being called to live by faith in his life, being made willing and ready to live for him, he went no matter the cost. What this scene in Leicester shows us is that while we may suffer for the gospel and for the name of Christ, no harm can ultimately come to us. Christ's power assures us of this. Hasn't he told us that even if we lose our lives, yet we shall still live? Hasn't he showed us the impotence of death through his resurrection? Hasn't he told us that all authority in heaven and on earth is his? Hasn't he shown us the radiance of his love for us to assure us that he is always thinking of his people, that he is always interceding for us before his Father, and that he is always looking after us as our good shepherd? Yes, he has. So we can look at life and death and understand that there's point and purpose to it and that none of it can ever happen apart from his say-so. That will live, make you live in confidence. As Christians, we have been called to live with a certain amount of risk. Risk from a human point of view, but really risk that's not all that risky because we know that our Savior holds us in his hands. And as we remain in him, he remains in us. And he will keep us and deliver us until he brings us into his presence to live eternally with him. This conviction allows us to live boldly to walk between the lions. It delivers us 
from fear, and it removes the sting of death. A third way Jesus equips us is by making us part of his flock. Paul and Barnabas travel from Lystra to Derby, which is a city about a day's journey away. And while it doesn't exist today, it did play a notable role in Christian history. We know from history that a couple key bishops actually come from this city that are important for some of the creeds that came out later on. Luke says that as they went there, they made many disciples, and afterward, they traveled back to Lystra. So again, we see them operating in the providence of God. This seems kind of risky from our point of view, but they had important work to do. And that work specifically was less had to do with less with evangelism and more to do with strengthening the church. We're told by Luke that they actually traveled to Lystra and then they went to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. So initially, while they had gone to preach the gospel, now we see them traveling back through those cities with the express purpose of encouraging and strengthening the saints in those places as they make their way back home. This shows me that they weren't just looking to get commitments from people or converts to follow Christ, but rather they were looking to do what Jesus has called his church to do, which is to make disciples of Christ who hold fast the gospel that we have received. So to do that, we see Luke tells us that they did five things. First, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. Now, what I take this to mean is that they were in urging these believers on in the truth of the gospel, telling them about everything that God had been doing and strengthening them for the work. So they're telling, uh, they're giving a report, but they're also, I expect, preaching and, and working, laboring in the word to encourage these disciples in what they're going to face after they leave. I expect that Paul was preaching to them and teaching them sound doctrine to make sure that as disciples they were being built up in the truth to continue on in the work that was now being handed over to them to reach their city with the truth. The second thing Luke says is that they encourage them to continue in the faith. Now this is important because Satan doesn't want you to continue in your faith. He wants you to abandon it. And so they're encouraging them. This kind of goes along with what it means to strengthen the believers. But I think specifically it gives an idea to the way that they are encouraging them to hold fast to the truth that they had first received. They wanted to encourage these believers living in these cities to press on in their faith, not to give in to pressure and doubt, not to compromise, but to grow in grace into Christ. They're, they are doing their part as apostles to call the saints to follow their example in faith and obedience to Jesus. The third thing that Luke says they were doing to equip these believers is they were warning them about the difficulties of the road before them. Luke says that they were saying to these disciples in all these cities, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In another one of Paul's letters, he mentions how he bore in his body, on his body, the marks of discipleship with Christ. Those, those rocks that hit him, they left a mark. He was bruised and bloodied. And you took one look at him, you saw, saw a battered man, but a man who was living in courage nonetheless. News of what he had suffered most certainly had made it back to these believers. And so as we see Paul and Barnabas coming back through those cities, they're encouraging them and strengthening them, and they want them to understand that the path of following Christ is going to take them through many tests and trials. The way of Christ is not an easy one. 
It is not a path we are able to walk in our own power. It requires the grace and the mercy of God. It pushes us outside of what we're able to handle, and it requires us to entrust ourselves to him. That's what it means to walk by faith. It requires us to live by faith, just as Christian had to when he was walking between those lines on the path. Paul and Barnabas didn't tell the believers in all these places that they might encounter some resistance. No, they told them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's a little shocking. If you're a fair-weather Christian, that's not going to work for you. Now, that is not to say that we're supposed to go out there and find ways to suffer, to earn our way into heaven. That is not what they're saying. It is rather to say that when we join Christ as his disciples, we are walking the same path he walked. Jesus hasn't called us to a cheap grace. He's called us to a costly grace, a grace he has purchased at the cost of his own blood. He has called us to the way of the cross, where we die to ourselves and where we live for him, where we turn the other cheek, where we suffer for righteousness, where we pray for our enemies, and where we refuse to compromise on the truth, even if it costs us our lives or our jobs or our families or our careers or those dreams that we might have. Our lives are not our own. It is Christ who lives in us. R.C. Sproul makes a really vivid point about the church today, which I think is very powerful. He writes, How many of us have been stoned or left for dead because of the proclamation of our faith? How many of us have been burned at the stake? The blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. We sing in church about the faith of our fathers, which led them to dungeons, to death, and all sorts of peril. But we don't live in a place like that. We have freedom of assembly in the United States. It is, because sudden, is it because suddenly our country is more open to the proclamation of the gospel? Or is it because, in a very real sense, the church militant has become the church impotent as we seek a safe way to experience our faith? That is a powerful question. And it's clear to me in the days ahead, your faith is going to cost you. It is. But that shouldn't discourage you. Actually, it should encourage you. Heaven came at great cost to Christ so that we could receive it freely. Listen carefully to those words of Paul and Barnabas. Understand that the path of Christ will take you through path of trouble, paths of trouble. But in the end, you may rest assured that no harm will come to you because you have eternal life and you are kept safe and secure in the hand of a great and loving shepherd who gave his life for you and took it up again so that you may have life in his name. Nothing worth doing is ever easy. And Christ hasn't given us a cheap grace. The fourth thing that Paul and Barnabas did for these believers is we see that they appointed elders for them in every church. Now this is interesting. And it is very important. Notice that as Paul and Barnabas went into these places, they weren't just making believers who were scattered. They were planting local churches. These churches were distinct from each other. They had their own set of people, members, who made them up. And now we see that they had their own set of leaders who were doing the work of pastoring and shepherding that flock. People weren't following Christ on their own. 
They were doing it in the context of the body of believers. They were coming together in worship. They were hearing God's word. They were supporting each other's needs. They were encouraging each other and fellowshipping with each other. They were holding each other accountable, and they were meeting together regularly to observe the ordinances. That is one of the important things we do as a church, which we're going to do here soon. When we look at this first missionary movement, we don't see the body of Christ scattered. We see it visible in individual churches located in all these different places. The establishment of elders was an important step in the health of these local churches. The elders didn't make the church the church, but they did play an important role in shepherding it. What I see from this and what I see across the New Testament is that the local church isn't optional. It's essential. And that's why we see Paul and Barnabas making sure these baby churches had leaders who were committed to the task. Now, the fifth thing we see that Paul and Barnabas did for the churches is that they committed them to the Lord. The church is God's creation. It's not Paul and Barnabas who were commended for doing anything that God wasn't already doing on his own. He involved them in this work, but ultimately we see as they left each church, they commended the church into the hands of God, recognizing that for this church to survive, for it to thrive, it was God who was going to have to take care of them. This was an important step of faith, I think, which ministered to the believers in this place, commending them over in prayer and in fasting to grow in grace, being kept by God. I'll just tell you right now that as a pastor, it is really hard for me to let go of some things, okay? It's hard because I feel a weight of responsibility to you. I I love you, and I want to lead by example I want to preach and teach to you and to encourage you. I want to exhort you. I want to equip you and so on. I want to meet faithfully what Paul charges Timothy to do. And I, I, I love this work. I love you as a church. I am so thankful God brought me here. But I am reminded, and sometimes Ellie has to be the one that reminds me, rebukes me, that in the end, your spiritual flourishing is not my own doing. It's not the quality of the sermon. It's not the order of our service. It is God working in you. And I love to see you all plugging into each other, doing what the body of Christ is supposed to do. And I'm reminded that at the end of the day, this flock is not my flock. It's God's flock. He is the chief shepherd. So if you're thriving in grace, it's because of his work, not mine. I just get to be along for the ride. In 1 Peter 5, Peter tells elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. One day I'm going to emblazon that in my office. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. We have a responsibility to each other. As I see the effort that was put in to encourage the church and to appoint elders in that, you can see this point and purpose in it. I am so encouraged to know that you are God's flock. And he ultimately, Jesus is your ultimate shepherd. He has called and collected us together, having laid down his own life for you, having taken it up again so that we could all be made his. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. He didn't forsake us in the face of the cross. He's not going to forsake us in the face of his victory, is he? 
Jesus didn't balk when it came to suffering on the cross, and he will not abandon us now. In every season, in every trial, in every joy, and in every sorrow, he will hold us fast. So while we may enter the kingdom through many trials, we have this great and enduring hope. He will never leave us. He will not forsake us. He will always provide us what we need when we need it. And he calls us to live simply by faith in him. So let's live boldly. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I just want to come before you and thank you for the firm foundation that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you that as we have looked at this apparent mishap with Paul's life, we actually end up seeing the power of his sovereign hand. And I pray, Father, as we see Paul and Barnabas, their love for your flock, I pray, Father, that we ourselves would press into that and live by faith in him for his glory, pressing each other forward and on in grace. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.